If you're not already a subscriber to the London Review of Books, now is the perfect time to try. Sign up for just £5 a month and treat yourself to some of the world's best writing from Europe's leading magazine of culture and ideas. Subscribe now while you're listening to this podcast at lrb.me forward slash now. That's lrb.me forward slash now. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the London Review Bookshop. It's a real pleasure to welcome two of my favourite poets writing today, Will Harris and Maureen McLean. Uh, Will's debut, Rendang, uh, published in 2020 with Granter, won the Forward Prize for Best First Collection. One of the poems in it, Say, had previously won the 2018 Forward Prize for Best Single Poem. It was a marvellous piece of kit. Will has surpassed it, I think, or certainly veered off it in a completely different direction with Brother Poem, a completely unexpected and super book. It's, uh, I was amazed by it. Maureen um, is a veteran of these, uh, of these events. Um, most recently at uh, the shop to launch her uh, selected poems, What I'm Looking For, and now uh, her new collection with a marvellous, um, chiming title, What You Want. It's a great pleasure to welcome these poets who are going to read from and discuss their work for about 45 minutes, following which we'll have time for questions from the floor with the roving mic. Welcome, Will. Welcome, Maureen. Thanks, John. Thanks, Okay, so I'll go first. Hello. Okay, I'm going to try and uh, restrict myself to reading from this book. I've been finding it very hard to, to read from. Because it's still, an, I don't know if you've, or you found this with books before, but it, when it is in this immediate um, kind of artifact stage, I find it very, I feel like I need to do lots of kind of spells to try and destroy it in some way. Um, and so most readings, I, I don't think I've done a single reading where I've just read from the book. Um, but I'm going to try and do that. So a lot of the book is about all of the stuff which is around the book. Um, a kind of hinterland. So each of the poem has a note, which is at the back, and I'm going to read the note as well as the, the poem. Each of the notes also has a little title. A plate of green smog. You were skeptical about things easing. In the park, we agreed that summer rain was 90% memories, 10% water. And who could speak from a subject position with such vague contours, which implied such a uniformity of experience? I wanted to reject belonging, in doing so to find new forms of solidarity, but this came out of feeling rejected. My granddad helped protect others during the massacre. You told me that. After being released from prison, he took the family to Jakarta. That, too. The government banned the use of Chinese names. Mum's name was changed. Yes, I know, yes, this is separate from me. But the feeling isn't. After the quinine plant. The more he thought, the more thinking itself became a source of anxiety, casting its green shade over him mid-sleep because of what he was and could not be, because of what he did not know he was. London, he knew. It was the other country in him he feared, the oak tree's unseen roots whose tendrils poked out mid-speech. Did you inhale diaspora? Did you choose cliché? No, he said, not knowingly. 
The more he thought, the more things came back to him, like the myth of the great-great-grandmother who left Fujian on broken feet sometime in the late Qing dynasty, the myth of the living tree divided among her children who became many distinct seeds that when cashed became one currency. The more he thought, the more he had to move, and soon he found himself in Beijing, expecting the thud of recognition, but as in a dream, he moved differently, walking the hutongs at night, shop after shop, different but the same. He licked toffee apples and drank bubble tea, his feet never touching real earth. The more he thought, the more names appeared, Pekambaru, Kotabaru, Chiang Mai, places whose names meant something new. And that was when he remembered the quinine plant, the poem he'd spent years writing, then abandoned. And he thought of the plant's long waxy leaves and white purplish flowers cultivated by the Dutch as a vaccine for malaria in the late 19th century, when his own Dutch great-great-grandfather worked at a quinine plant in Bandung. The more he thought, the more he needed to return to Peking University's gated campus, where aged five, he and his mum had lived for 10 months. A guard stopped him at the gates to ask for ID, just as a different man who looked like a svelte Santa Claus appeared and said he was a professor of economics. He'd vouch for him. The more he thought, the less he knew, and sitting beside the artificial lake, a part of him remembered it 25 years before, snowed under, dirty white as swans down, the other part connecting nothing with nothing as the sun set behind a plate of green smog. The more he thought, the more he returned to the quinine plant, as a way to make sense of his parents' relationship as a kind of post-colonial romance which made him its awkward postscript. The more he thought, the less he could extract some life-saving balm from the duress of history without which, what was the point of poetry? The more he thought, the less order took the form of words to represent the slaughter his family escaped. The more he thought of buckets of fried chicken his uncle brought back from KFC when he worked there in Anaheim in the late 90s, his cousin already speaking perfect American. He saw his uncle's sweat-stained armpits as he praised Colonel Sanders, have more biscuit, have more gravy. The more he thought, the more he needed to purge himself through walking at night, inhaling tree pollen thrown into the air by recent rain. So he walked until his eyes were bleared, until he had to lie down on wet grass, dreaming the pages of the quinine plant, buried in a green shade and grown tall with the blood of workers. A violent plant, which occasionally bore small flowers that smelt of milk sweets and made white people salivate, though unfortunately, they were poisonous. Thank you. I'm going to read a few little depressing poems now, <laughs> just to mix things up. <laughs> yeah, when I, during the lockdown, I was living alone with a cat. I was cat sitting, and the cat sitting situation was suddenly indefinitely extended, and then the cat got really ill, and suddenly I was like trying to inject medicine into the cat's mouth while wrapping it like a tortilla in a towel, and anyway. <laughs> that was my experience of lockdown. And in the meantime, to keep myself sane, I was just endlessly uh, crafting these very small poems, which I called commute songs. And originally, though this uh, superstructure has just been like cut away, they were part, I, I was imagining that I was in conversation with a, a 16th century uh, sailor and that he was leaving messages for me. And that was like 
going to be the energy behind the poems. So that, that, that kind of explains why there are, there are lots of random quotes from 16th century texts, which are entirely uh, embedded. And there's just random spelling for no reason. I mean, obviously, you can't hear the spelling. You can he you'll hear that it sounds very weird at certain points. And again, this is the note that comes with it. Oh, also, I had an elderly friend who, who died quite early on. And she actually died from a fall, not connected to COVID. But that, that was partly the energy of it, too. The grease swirl in the baking tray. You didn't know my friend who died. Early in the year, I hadn't known her long. Grief was embarrassing. An anthropologist refers to a zigzag model of time, whereby time is not so much a straight line as a sequence of oscillations between polar opposites. Night, day, winter, summer, drought, flood, age, youth, life, death. In such a scheme, the past has no depth to it. All past is equally past. It is simply the opposite of future. Before her death, time was abstract a blanket concealing the crumbs of today. Now I felt time in my body, time stretched out when my teeth ached or when I thought of family, stopped briefly in the morning, slowed down again at night, solidly, fluidly. Commute songs. Days of pooling taste preceding, days unchanging, changing just to take the bins out. Then the cat stopped eating and the hall light dimmed. I woke to wake up in a cloudless dream, my tonsils wrapped in cotton wool. The daybell rang, loudly sang the cuckoo, and downstairs a small leaf waited like a wooden boat. Once, asking if she had something on her face, she forgot the tubes clicked to her septum and turned with pride towards the surplus blossom on the trees outside. Afterwards, what words, what after? My watch stopped at the beginning of the month. I gathered sheaves instead and placed them at the foot of an empty bed. For you, I said, pretending vows could best be made to compensate for absent friends. In sad rancor, O oh, chose not to eat, drink, or speak for 30 days. So did I drink the flat earth dry alone until discovering a hair sealed in a bag of flour, which must have sprouted there. I called it A, no E. I asked if it would name itself for me. Always, I am talking to myself, saying things like commute and septum as if I could outthink the very thought while in a corner of the screen, a corner of myself retreating, hearing stupid things, me said, I wink. How can you grow without having shared your work, lodged in you like an unused parachute, an embolism, always the voice off screen butts in. When she died, she fell to earth so quickly, neither the gitane nor wine glass fell from her hands, veiled and open were her eyes. The fire brigade broke in to find her staring at the wall, but look at me, but you weren't there. You're laughing. Everyone is dead. Gradations make it late, no longer five to eight or 10 or midnight, but actually in the sense of having always been late. So late I hear a car honk from two days ago, the driver calling, bye, I love you, bye, in a hollow in the wall above where once a floyd set sail. And I call, bye, I love you, bye, between the podcast and the lamp, memory dies. I hear the tent flaps blow, an ambush laid in sleep. Waves foam over the beam end. So many gradations past the point of not being late. I hear you calling and fall straight asleep. So the references to the Floyd and the ambush, actually, I hadn't realized that's the, that's the sailor from the previous narrative. So there are a few in that vein. 
Um, okay, I'll just read two more short ones, and then I'm going to hand over uh, to Maureen, who I'm very, yeah, very honored to be reading, reading for. I thought I saw a stock dove. I knew not how to term it. There were burpees. There were people so absorbed in skipping they could miss the woman rowing silently. Cues formed around the corner. As the road is to the sea, I would commute my life for you. So what is known might be as one withdrawing at the other's roar. Come daily to the rocks. Longed for or lost, love returns. Cross over to me. The cat slumped on my dead leg. I rubbed behind her ear, checked her breathing. Outside the new air, dusty, many motes of dust. I fed her first, made porridge soup, drank coffee, ate a piece of toast, then came back up, by which time all the dust had been sieved off. These songs began. If I hold to any belief, then what I hold to, like a favorite leaf, is in there being some continuity of being. So where are you? Thank you, and uh, I'm going to make sure. I think I'll stand too, <laughs> you don't, in you the don't spirit of Will. <laughs> um, yeah, and I'm just thrilled to be reading with Will. I um, uh, had missed his U.S. launch, so I feel this is a kind of wonderful and compensatory and, and much more conjunction. So, And uh, also just to be reading here in this bookshop, um, and I want to thank the, the whole LRB bookshop crew, and John and Claire and various others who've been so welcoming, and the Penguin crew, uh, Donald and Isabel. And also uh, to be reading here is particularly special because uh, 10 poems in this book uh, I counted, <laughs> appeared first in the London Review of Books uh, magazine. So it's a real um, delight and honor um, to have this synergy and to be able to be back here. Um, so this book is called What You Want, and I'm going to read um, a few poems from it. And it begins, uh, uh, you might say, stationed in the eastern seaboard of the U.S., and uh, then it moves. So it's a kind of begins as a kind of sea-minded book. Somewhere in Will's book, um, you have that wonderful phrase of a river mind. And I used to think of myself as primarily lake-minded. There's a poem that talks about, um, not my poem, some other wonderful, and yet I can't remember their name, poet talked about people being lake-minded or sea-minded. And this book is, a, to my surprise, a bit more of a sea-minded book. So it begins on the um, shore of the Atlantic, and then it moves inland to various interiors. Uh, then moves to Europe and the UK, no longer in Europe, sorry, uh, and then back to the shore, back to um, the Atlantic. And throughout the book, there are some little, I think of them as ditties or grace note poems, um, and they permute this question of the title, What You Want, and that question uh, addressed both to myself and to any reader and to anyone. What does one want? What might one want? How does one feel that out? How does one think about that or feel that out with others? Um, so the book begins with one of these little untitled ditties. Um, open sky, what you want. Open channel, what you want. Open sea, open question. And the first poem takes its title, um, Now is the Cool of the Day, from an old song I first uh, heard in a rendition from the uh, great American folk singer Gene Ritchie. And it also remembers, and that's identified in the note, uh, the philosopher Anne Dufermontel. 
Now is the Cool of the Day. And this is a poem stationed in uh, Gloucester, Massachusetts, and various lighthouses are invoked en route. From here, you used to see the sea. The gulls still palaver. The fishing boats still eke out what they can. At dusk, the eastern point light every five seconds flashes white. The dog bar light shines occulting red. The ten-pound island every six seconds blinks isoface red. These are their characteristics. So many beaches, reefs, and shoals named for woes, then woes effaced, like your footprint just now in wet sand. You've only begun to learn the high tides, and lo, the two of each a day. By day, I mean also night. By night, I mean the soft blank I used to be too shy to go swimming in. There are drowning children, and one must try to save them. So she thought, one thinks, and died trying. The old ways of being a person have their hold on me, and I move in the wake of baleful ships and of very few gods. I want to find something to believe in, the young poet said, beautiful, vegan, and scowling. It's disgusting, this posthumous stance I adopt some days, and some days it's thrust upon me, unwanted vestiture. She's only as beautiful as ever, another poet aging splendidly with her delicate gold jewelry and avant clothes. She grew up three towns away from Donna Karen, who was still alive. Yes, I said to the student who wanted to analyze the fashion system in Swift, there's no end to beauty and shit. The next poem uh, is a poem called Get What You Want, and it takes wing from one of Sappho's fragments, uh, Fragment 58. And across my books, I have found myself returning to these uh, fragments of Sappho and often finding them inspiring nodes for, for, for poems. And this poem, uh, this fragment is also known as the Tithonus fragment um, because it invokes the myth of Tithonus who fell in love with the goddess of the dawn, Eos, and she asked Zeus for eternal life for her lover, Tithonus, but forgot to ask for eternal youth as well as eternal life. Mistake. Uh, so that's one little mythological core in the fragment and it shows up in the poem. Um, get what you want. You who, like undergraduates, are always young, go in for the liar. Do not neglect to put your hands in the air, say, wah, and wave the long night endless. As for me, the dawn breaks upon my tender body, turning stiff, my hair from black to white. I find myself changed in this light. My hips locked, an untwerkable ass. C'est la vie, que sera. And you, forever young in the strobe of the club that makes night danceable. Delicate animals holding me up in this air. Some live forever, girls. Not I, not you, but some goddesses and the ones they choose. Even the one who forgot to ask for endless youth. Remember the fawn streaking across the lawn below a thundering sky? That's not me any longer. Though the lightning shows the way it was once done. The wind shifted 
now north that once blew south. I see you there laughing, rolling together in rhythms my blood also feels. So they say. Remember how they sang, how the legend goes, you can't always get what you want. Those immortal aging rockers who for so long defied what comes to all, their hearts straining against deathless ribs. And this is a poem um, that just appeared actually in the London Review of Books. And um, I should salute uh, the editor, Alice Spalls, and uh, Joanne O'Leary for their incredible attentiveness and responsiveness. Um, and among the proliferating titles that this book might have borne were, were things like From a Book of Hours, Open Question, Open Channel, a vaguely Wordsworthy and uh, Moods of My Own Mind. He apparently called some portion of one of his books Moods of My Own Mind, which seemed both hilarious and impossible. But, uh, but this, this particular poem is titled From a Book of Hours, and it was dedicated to um, uh, a wonderful scholar in person, Annelise Francois. For you, I got up to see the moon. Say it was 4 AM. Say then it was 8.30-ish. These are not natural hours, but hours of a kind, my little book of, a little digital scannable book, a telepathy toward. I know you feel what there is to feel, and oh, movement. Say it was a kind of moon near half, waning, phasing. A pond is a pond is a pond is my pond, ours broiling in a cloud-obscured sky, hyperbole. Things are not easy, Latodes. He writes things that sound like poems, and so they are, more or less, a severe critic said of John Ashbery. How to shape an hour, chart a flow. Corbin versus Corvid. Whose etymologies are winning today? Whose orthographies are rising? Let's follow a kingfisher down the long shore, extravagant with brush and unseen weeds and a toppled pine bearing its underside, a labyrinth of roots shocked out of the earth. Let's tell time by an unblasted mountain. Let's create unimagined reservoirs. Let's condense the air between delicate rock ledges and drink dishton condensare. Let's recondense the rain gone air, gone water, and the miraculous well in the Rajasthani desert. Enough is enough. Peculiar snails cling to the boulders below the pond water and maroon themselves in the sand. I have never swum in the sea off Brittany. Shadows on the mountaintops are the fingertips of clouds. They caress the conifers, then draw away their delicate handkerchiefs. Oh, the fancy, cheating elf, deceive me all the livelong day. Jay, crow, kingfisher, raven. And now in the center of the pond below Catamount Mountain, riding low and majestic, the loon. And now in the late morning sky, the same, or is it the same, moon? And I'll just read a couple of more poems. 
Maybe I'll read this poem, Channel, which is a poem, um, uh, and the epigraph is from the poet W.S. Graham. Uh, it came from one of his notebooks, Take Down Actual Speech. And it was a poem occasioned in part by an invitation from two poets, Sam Buchan Watts and Lavinia Singer, uh, on the centenary, centenary of Graham's birth. They asked poets and artists to respond to something of Graham's, and they gave folks a, extra, a set of extracts from his notebooks. And they said, do something with this in any medium, anything you might want. And I particularly gravitated to this line from the notebooks, take down actual speech. And I used that as a kind of uh, inner prompt over several months in 2018. And this became uh, the organizing principle for this poem. And everything in this poem is overheard speech, unaltered, but reassembled. Um, and it was a time in which I was traveling uh, a fair amount um, between the UK and Europe and this poem is called Channel. I'm gonna tell you a story. The lane we're going down goes by another name, Groper's Lane. That's right, we're in the red light district. It must have seemed rather avant-garde. It does so even now. I see more and more people sleeping rough. Because I always stay in nice hotels, I love brain. I know where your head's at because mine's been there. It's very hard for a Japanese person to understand what will appeal to American readers. I eat dramatically less than I did three years ago. Where's that heading? The incinerator. Will you be here long? England is a bitch. Isn't he the one who found your country, discovered it? It was an experiment. How do they decide which one is the male and which one is the female? Please proceed to the transfer desk. What are you fucking doing? We are flying through trauma clouds. Regardez, maman. It's low tide. Let's go collect something. I have a great crested newt. I confess I'm nostalgic for the old days when there was the avant-garde and the establishment and you knew what side you were on. We may expect to see Paris on the right-hand side of the aircraft. I believe in something, but broken bones are stronger bones. They don't have human rights in Berlin. She simply can't talk to the young people of Lampedusa. Why don't you smile? Give me two minutes. Cinque stelle, cinque stelle. Someone could have died. It was the best possible outcome. Life is hard. Why do you have to make it harder? We are the adults. Can you erase our messages? And I think I'll end with a poem that is um, uh, the last poem of the book. Um, called Moonrise, and um, a lot of the book uh, is explicitly and implicitly occasioned by conversation and, and, and friendships and invitations, and uh, this was a poem written later in the composition of the book, uh, actually one of the few written during the pandemic, although it's not an overtly pandemical poem, but... Um, but uh, yeah, it's one of the ones last composed, and it does end the book, Moonrise. 
The moon rose in the sky as the moon rose in the poem. The new held in the lap of the old, and we talked about the weather and imminent disaster forestalled since we were together. Comrades, I am with you under this very full moon. And we shall not yet set forth, but we'll talk about the shape of things and thereby shape this hour, this day, if not this life. Are you depressed? Does a reflection of bright objects, themselves reflecting brighter objects, pulsing energies, make you cry your face toward the darkening sky? Are you too always mooding the air, sulfurous or snow-cleaned, wind-washed, particulated with microplastics? I cannot see what I breathe except when I freeze. There's a streak on the lake of a yellowy white you could drown in for real. Please don't. All you believers in total immersion, all you who hope yet to surface, I salute you. I on a far shore, but thinking of you as no wind tears the bare branches away. There's a stillness and another stillness. There's a whiteness whitening the gray. There's a fullness plain as day in the dawning night, an impersonal rock drawing the waves far away to their ebb. You wanted real things, food and trucks and diapers and, okay, a moon a baby says goodnight to. Good morrow. I haven't given up yet. We haven't. The connectivity is good. Today, every conversation found an open channel. Thank you. Okay. So I guess I thought a, a place to start. Yeah, you kind of nodded towards it. I, it was a question I always used to ask people um, when I was younger and trying to seem um, really profound. I would ask them whether they were a sea or a mountain person because I'd read that in an, an essay and I was like, and it felt like a really deep question. But actually, I feel like your book really like <laughs> brings that alive for me again. And I, it made me want to ask whether you're a sea or a mountain person. Gosh, I mean, this book is both a sea and mountain book to kind of, you know, finesse that question. Um, but I do feel I always want to be near water. So, um, mm. and that has tended to mean fresh water, but not only, yeah. You know, it puts me in mind of, um, this line from Wallace Stevens where he says something like, life is an affair of people and places. And for most people, it's an affair of both. But for me, it's just an affair of places. Mm. <laughs> so, and I sort of think, I don't know, for me, people and places both matter a lot. And thinking about landscape yeah. and, and, and acculturation of landscape has been really important yeah. over the past decade. So I was talking to you a bit about this before and the, the, the word what is, is featured in um, several poems and the title of your selective was called What I'm Looking For. This, this collection is What You Want. That, that idea of whatness, of, of quiddity, of um, both a, the specificity of things in the world, but also this kind of romantic idea of the, the, the essence of something. And obviously you've got poems which, don't, which kind of lean into that, poems about, about mountains, about the sea, about you know, the moon, which aren't afraid to, yeah, kind of, tread this line, it's not really treading a line, it's like veering between the two, these two different um, aspects of, yeah, of whatness. I don't know how you feel I about that. I think that's 
really astute, actually. No one has quite um, said that precisely to me, but I do think that's an oscillation, and particularly in this book with, you know, like in the last poem, this um, wanting, wanting poems to be open to, you know, food and trucks and diapers, and, you know, elsewhere in the book, there uh, it invokes um, the dreadful American Second Amendment and signage and, you know, and, and this sense of um, material things, but also that vibration of whether you call them essences or... Um, uh, archetypes. Yes, or, or although archetypes, I get a little anxious in terms of... I have a kind of profound ambivalence about Jungian stuff, so sorry, it just triggers <laughs> me, but that's another question. But the sense of the, I mean, and partly this gets into questions of time scale too, right? And what, and what one's interested in in terms of, or what one's um, vibrating with and against in terms of the quotidian and the daily, the monthly, the seasonal, and things that definitely not only outlast us as individuals, but potentially the species, you know? And I've always been interested in that question of moving across scales, mm. um, geologically, ecologically, but also being very interested in material and psychology. So I think the poems often are trying to toggle among those registers. Where, where does the poem start for you, Ben? I would have said, I would have said six or eight years ago um, that it starts with a phrase or a rhythm. Um, and I, I remember having a uh, a, a powerful sense of um, um, response when I came across something Mahmoud Darwish said in translation, that a rhythm seizes me. And I think Paul Valery says something similar. And the fact is, um, some of the poems in this book, they, they come from that, um, you might say, pre-semantic source too, some kind of rhythmic, um, atmospheric pulse. But some things actually are responses to invitations. You know, where somebody, um, because I, I've had this ongoing birthday project where I asked friends uh, if they would commission from me a poem right, because I wanted to be uh, thinking about and with others in, in a, a more conscious and concentrated way. And it felt like both a birthday gift to me and also if they would be willing to kind of give me a commission. So some of the poems in this book are actually versions of, you know, the supposedly Coleridge founded this subgenre of the conversation poem. And so I kind of think of some of the poems in this book as, as coming out of that. You know, they're, they're and, and, and to, this was something, and I hope this isn't um, uh, uh, doing violence to, to your book, but there's the incredible uh, sense of, of uh, conversations notionally real and imagined in brother poem and, and this sense of the mobility. I mean, you have those series of poems called Weather and Address, and I feel like so many of my poems could have been called Weather and Address. <laughs> there was such, such a kind of sense of uh, the question of ambience and yet specific address, but one for me, I hope that if a poem is dedicated to somebody, it is not exclusively oriented to that person. You know, I mean, that's, that's the way I sort of, I feel like that's the way I respond to art anyway. Whatever the conditions of its creation, if I'm responding to it, guess what? I was an inadvertent addressee. You know, that painting was actually made for me. That movie was made for me. Or that movie was definitely not made for me. And that novel was definitely not written for me. And therefore... I have many complicated thoughts about that, you know. But I, so I'm really interested in these questions of address and whether 
in in both the meteorological sense, but also in an ambient sense of of, of mood, of collective experience. Um, yeah, sorry, I could obviously riff out on this for a while. But yeah, um, no, that's really interesting. Yeah. I feel like I yeah also could. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. But maybe this would be a good point to bring in other people. I just don't want to... Wanna, Speaking of conversation. Like, hug, hug the conversation, yeah. Does anyone have any, any questions or comments? I love the one with overheard conversation. How did you go about that tactically? I, it's kind of great. It's sort of, it's like, you know, spy with a notebook, right? Yeah, um, I, uh, I, I'm a long-term eavesdropper. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, there's wonderful occasions for that in, in, in urban areas especially. Um, and I just had to have notebooks with me. And I would, I would always just jot down things that struck me. I mean, people's phrasings are so amazing and uh, striking. So it was a kind of low-key habit I sometimes had, but not in any directed way. And that prompt, take down actual speech, was like, OK, what if one were a little more focused about it? And I just did it in a kind of like take it down without uh, a sense of shaping. And then months later, I went back to my notebooks and then shaped things um but it really so it did really you edit does the you did edit the speech a little i bit edited it only in the sense of uh, combination i didn't edit the interior structure of the sentences um that was just my own uh, given constraint but um but it was it was almost like a kento of 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 overheard voices and uh and i haven't i haven't done something like that before nor have i since but it was a it was a really interesting process and experiment yeah, I know. I was saying I actually set that as a, a prompt um, when I was at the South Bank last last month That's during our lunch break. We went out and tried to transcribe conversations we overheard, and it was amazing. It was. I found it a lot harder though, to to get it down. Partly because people talk quite fast and incoherently. I'd like the kind of the opposite to what you were saying. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Well, for me, it was you, never transcribing a, a full conversation. It was like some striking phrasing or some so yeah. and that was over many many months it wasn't phrasing. only giving myself mm. an hour or two so you, you there was a lot of ambient material yeah i just want to ask you both about characters in your books um so will i want to ask you about the character of the brother um, and maureen i want to ask you about the character in that poem from the book of hours um where the, I think it's in the first line, is it the word you? And um, I want to ask just a very basic, almost like technical question of if, 
if a poem is addressed to somebody or dedicated to somebody, um, if a poem is dedicated to someone, are we directed to assume that the you is then the person to whom the poem is directed or is it a more general condition? Mm. Yeah, I, I think I struggle with characters. I've tried to write scripts and no, like novelly short story things, but I just, I just really can't generate character <laughs> because I, it just feels very, um, yeah, I always just feel like a mono, like a megalomaniac. I just feel like a mad puppet master who's trying to like animate these, these little, little figures and it doesn't, it doesn't feel authentic. I think what I, which maybe links to address the idea of the you, I think the first impulse to write for writing poems to me came from this, um, this gesture towards something outside of me. And it wasn't, a, so it wasn't really a gesture towards making something. It was more an opening of myself um, kind of like, uh, like in a song, I guess. And, and I, I, I probably was a failed singer, not, not a singer, just like a failed musician. And so it, it gave me that same sense, which I imagine musicians feel, which is a sense of, of it, it's more of a directional sense rather than a making sense. And so the brother is just a container for, um, for that impulse to, to speak to and to have someone listen uh, so yeah he doesn't really have any any characteristics and yeah that's why I also I feel like I'd love to include friends in poems but I just don't know how I, I just I just worry I'd get it really wrong I just described just mischaracterize them like um, yeah I don't know how you feel I mean hearing you talk about this note and and, and Vona thinking about your question I guess um, I was thinking partly too about like prepositions. And I was thinking that some of the poems here explicitly say for such and such, but not a lot. And I think maybe they, and they don't say to, you know? So I think that I think of um, if there are, um, and also I, you know, I feel like poems are occasioned by actual living friends I have and also like dead friends I have, you know, like really deeply dead people like cavemen, you know? So I kind of feel, uh, one might want to think, for me, I think about poems as coming from and toward as opposed to about. I almost never write a poem about X. Like it's never uh, a character description uh, of, of, a, of a friend or, or a notional figure. But, um, but, but to that question of, um, one th I mean, I certainly do think about and sometimes worry about that, that kind of potential feeling of exclusion that can happen if one has dedications. I certainly have felt that as a reader, um, you know, as a much younger reader. If, if I was reading New York School Poets and they're all filled with these proper names and these sort of casual, you know, Frank O'Hara and this friend and that friend and Bunny and this painter and that painter, and it conjures a whole world, and it conjures a whole world that was 100% alien to me and 100% inaccessible to me. So that's a very interesting thing, right? So there's a kind of performance of intimacy which actually can function as, uh, for some people, uh, exclusionary. And I really hope, uh, obviously I don't want my poems to do that. Also, I really do like Frank O'Hara. <laughs> so it's this very interesting kind of set of questions. And, um, uh, and 
you know, I can, I can find it a little dreary, to be frank, if you open a collection and, you know, every poem is two or four somebody, and it just, it's just like, ugh, you know. And so, I, you know, partly, you know, I think of, you know, dreadful Wordsworth, who is a kind of um, unfortunate or fortunate sedimentary rock in my brain. And his long poem, The Prelude, was known as the poem to Coleridge. Well, I didn't know that. You know, I read The Prelude, and it seemed like that was a poem maybe also addressed to me, you know. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in that kind of um, uh, possibility of being a receiver, both as a, as a, as a, or as a composer, you know, that, that if I'm thinking about someone or a, a, a confluence yeah. of people, and from that, certain kinds of um, shapings might emerge. But I hope yeah. that might go forth to others. I, so, I'm sorry, that's it's a very no, convoluted really answer, Vamona. Yeah. It feels like there's an inflection point at which specificity can starts to exclude rather than yes, include. Yes, exactly. Then, which makes me think, I work in care homes, and I, and there's this one um, resident who loves, uh, who loves reading, but she, she's, she can't really read, so we have to read through books together, and she loves crime novels. And I've discovered that all crime novels are absurdly specific. Like nothing is ever, everything has its brand name. Or like, like a certain, you know, it's like I picked up the, the box of Kellogg's Special K and set down my like, you know, expensive wallet brand or something and like picked up a, and it. And it's so every second I have to like, every sentence I have to explain like five things and Google things to explain it to this resident. And and I feel like it, it, it's almost at the point where it's doing something kind of weird and interesting. And like, this is so culturally specific. And it's like trying to transmit such a very culturally specific idea of who this person is through these, these, these brand names and these, this effective product placement. But it's almost untranslatable to someone yeah. who's not part of, yeah. who, doesn't, who doesn't know this. I think that is... Uh... The, the kind of negative space of that is part of my attraction to the, um, and I was thinking about this with your commute songs, to um, Elizabethan songs and to anonymous ballads, that these are things that they've wiped away um, the demand of hyperspecificity, and they 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 have a transhistorical currency, and I and and also that they fly under the sign of anonymous, and I think there's something about that that's very. Um, Vivifying and heartening, um, as a as a kind of like stream running um, uh, below and for all of us. Um, yeah. So, well, for, specifically for Will, like, how did being Asian or like having expectations or certain boundaries or something affected you as a poet? Mm, that is a good question. That is a good question. Maybe. It's um, well, I guess. Um, being Asian in a white majority society creates a certain expectation around, you know, what you're going to, what you'll write about, what, you know, well, around everything, you know, how you dress, what you do, what you say. And so that's probably why the first stuff I wrote, because I'm quite a self-conscious person and was probably made more self-conscious by that, I felt like I had to address the way people thought about me, the kind of cliches around around that before I could really talk about anything else. Um, and especially because when I was writing there, it didn't feel like there were that many other people like me. And, uh, or I didn't feel like there was a community of that, you know, many Asian writers, particularly Asian poets. And so since then, it's kind of got a bit easier because maybe through conversations, I feel like I can just talk to them and I don't have to worry about constantly 
you know, the, ga the white gaze, the gaze of, you know, this like person I wanted to explain myself to. But um, yeah, particularly around mixed raceness, I felt like there wasn't a lot of good writing. <laughs> there's a lot of, there, I don't know how much you've, you've come across, sort of, there's been a lot of um, cliches, sort of, there have been a lot of fantasies projected onto mixed race people. One of the most prominent ones is the idea that mixed race people are going to save the world or that, that they will undo racism because everyone will be mixed race and therefore nobody, you know, racism won't exist, which kind of ignores the power relationships which, uh, which are, you know, under, underlie race relationships. Um, but yeah, that's, that's my, those are my small, small thoughts. I would be more <laughs> interested to hear your experience. Maybe we'll talk about, talk about that afterwards. I was going to ask you a question about it because you've, Maureen, I know you've mentioned a couple of romantic poets through and then obviously on the cover of your book it, it kind of references you as a romantic poet. Um, I'm, a, I'm a secondary school English teacher. I love romantic poets and it's what all like the kids always get really, really excited about the romantics and like very impassioned about romantic wow. poets. And actually, when gosh, I want to know these yeah. people. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Where are you? Um, Who are these people? And actually, when you were reading the poem of the kind of overhearing conversations, was I know it's not really romantic, but when I was listening to it, my kind of teacher brain was thinking, the kids, are, like, I'm going to read this poem with the kids, they're going to love it. But I was just wondering if the kind of, like, what you see your kind of relationship with, with the romantic tradition, if that's something you've kind of actively cultivated or if it's something that kind of has been, like, labeled upon you and and where you see the kind of relevance of the romantics like either in your work or um maybe just the kind of world or the world of poetry more generally well, thank you so a wonderful question and it, it kind of um, picks up on something will and i were talking about before the reading and um i guess i would say i'm sort of slightly haplessly informed by haplessly and to some extent consciously informed by a kind of legacy of, of uh, so-called romantic poetry. And, um, but also it is a particularly American torque, which means for me, I didn't read Wordsworth in school. You know, uh, he wasn't some kind of national monument to me. He was some kind of slightly weird dominating customer over in the corner uh, uh, guilty of the egotistical sublime, but also incredible as a uh, autobiographical poet. So, uh, and and I, I would have read Wordsworth after people like Whitman or language poets or Dickinson. So, so my sort of inner library and vibrations was was a was probably more eccentric. And uh, but 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 in in my teaching life, I've spent a lot of time on British poetry 1760-ish to 1820-ish. And a lot of those poets and their political thought matter a lot to me. And people like Shelley uh, particularly, and you know, Wordsworth too, and Coleridge, and poets like Mary Robinson and Mary Shelley. And, and, and partly, I, I, think, I think about and with these poets as a way of thinking about, uh, for me, thinking about modernity and thinking about um, Rightly or wrongly, it seemed to me that this was a, the late 18th century is when a lot of poets, uh, English language poets, 
started thinking really hard about, or had to think very hard about the category of the human, questions of freedom, questions of slavery, questions of gender in ways that are still uh, undead. And, uh, and that's one of the reasons I kind of uh, found myself backing into that period from modernism, because I felt this was the first period where these things erupt in a kind of uh, extraordinary, revolutionary way. So, um, yeah, so that's a very, that's a very long answer. So I do feel like they're, they're, they're a sort of uh, a, a set of complex companions with, with a lot of other poets and thinkers too. And, um, and they, uh, but also these questions of, of certain kinds of forms like, like the ode or the conversation poem, that, 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 that sense of poems that might be in a, a more common language, that they might be more accessible, that they might be addressed to a friend, yet they might also keep alive the space for thinking hard about things bigger than the merely human. It seems to me there are really long, powerful spaces for that, for a lot of, for a lot of writing in a lot of different genres. So, uh, you know, people like Robert Burns matters to me too. Will, I don't know your thoughts on this. Yeah, no, I mean, yeah, it's really refreshing to hear you talk about it that way. It makes me jealous. Maybe that's how it should be taught, though. The idea, you know, words should be taught after all of that stuff. Definitely. Or is it's impossible, <laughs> or it feels to me like it's impossible to encounter him in the English context outside of the, the myth, you know, the, the, myth, the English myth-making project which he's wrapped up in. And as you were alluding to his his work uh, is I mean particularly the early work is so different and separate from that and it's really sad that that's kind of lost you know that the the political angle of his work the way he was writing about uh, and from a particular moment like the enclosures you know vagrancy laws that were sh you know throwing people off the land and then that's like a huge animating part of right. the work and yet the the part we see is is the part which is in in service of this like you know, what often the daffodils, bucolic idea right. of England, which, yeah. So you have to kind of fight through that to get to Wordsworth, whereas you seem to be able, yeah, maybe from an American context, you can come to him just and pick the part, which yeah. is... And maybe that's its own it's weird nice. violation, but I mean, to read Wordsworth after Whitman, I mean, they have, they occupy similar spaces in my brain. I don't think they occupy similar spaces in a lot of people's brains, but, you know, male poets who talk endlessly about themselves, Powerfully, you know, um, mm. uh, that's a thing. That's yeah. a 50-year period where that happened, you know. And so I, I kind of there's a lot to think about with 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 that. And and pos you know, who gets to write about the self? What self? Who gets to think about their acculturation, their development? Who gets to think about the growth of the poet's mind? You know, what happens when that gets generalized? What happens when all kinds of people that you know Wordsworth couldn't have ma imagined as uh, proper subjects, you know, move into that space. So I'm, I'm really interested in that as a, as a template for unforeseen inhabitations. Um, and I'm really uninterested, except sociologically, in the monumentalized Wordsworth. Mm. Um, but okay. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.